Cornerstone, we firmly believe that we as a church do not exist principally for the benefit of ourselves. Rather, we firmly believe that God has blessed us as a church so that we would be a blessing to those who are not a part of this body. One of the ways that we do that as a church is that we pray for, we seek, and we give in support for the advancement of the truth, the grace, the love, and the joy of Jesus to extend here in Southern Maryland, but also through the D.C. metro region, across the country, and across the globe. This morning, we have a dear brother who's going to be preaching God's word for us today. His name is Russ Whitfield, and he has been planning a church in uh, D.C. in between Howard and Catholic University is where he's been doing that work. We as a church have been supporting this work, not only in general through our presbytery, but also specifically for the last couple years. Now, what I get to know is that I see Russ and other church planners in our presbytery several times a year, um, get to hear about them, get to hear what God's doing through them, and, and have grown in relationship with them. You all don't get to hear that because they're usually busy on Sunday mornings, and it's kind of hard for them to get away from what they're doing for them to be here. However, today we were able, Russ was able to break away from his home church, uh, from the church plant that God's called him to, and he's here this morning to open God's word with us. And so, Russ, please come and share God's word with us today. Good morning, Cornerstone. Well, I'll tell you what. The first service was a rowdy crowd. I, I, because I told them that I grew up in the black church, and you know, growing up in the black church, I'm used to people responding back, "Amen, amen." All right. Well, you know, y'all are a little bit. Y'all must be, you know, Baptisterian or Presbycostal or something, because, because. I told them that when I first came into the PCA, you know, I found out that the Presbyterian amen was this. Mm. That, that's a Presbyterian amen. So, you know, when I would pray, I said, let all God's people say, mm, right? So, so anyway, I just want to let you know that I'm happy to receive any feedback that you may have. And I am very grateful to be here with you all this morning. And I, before I start, I just want to extend a very uh, sincere thank you to all of you for your generosity to our church, Grace Mosaic, uh, for your support, for your prayers. It means so much uh, because y'all know how challenging it can be in ministry and you can feel like it's lonely. It's a lonely road sometimes. And so I, uh, it's sweet to be able to think on all of the people who have been so generous to support the work because they believe in what God is doing and they're excited about seeing gospel witness raised up in hard places. So I just want you to know how meaningful it is to me and how grateful uh, we are to have your support. So thank you for that. This morning, we will be in the book of Acts, chapter 2, uh, and we are going to be working from this text this morning, the book of Acts, chapter 2. I'm going to begin with verse 1, Acts, chapter 2. When you're there, say amen. Some of y'all grew up doing sword drills, didn't you? If you're new to the Bible, just turn it in half and start swiping those pages to the left. It will be after the Gospel of John, the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that right now, you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray that right now you would do more than we came in here expecting you to do. That this wouldn't be any ordinary time as we sit under your word preached. But that we would expect to be changed, to be encouraged, to be humbled, to be motivated, to be inspired, to be transformed by all that you have to say to us. So God bless this time to be fruitful in our lives, to nourish us. And prepare us and equip us for the lives you call us to live. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was thinking about what I wanted to bring uh, when I came down here to visit you all. And I was reminded of um, <laughs> something that happens every year in the Whitfield household. Every year, my wife and I and our three children, we go up to visit my parents in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, if you will. It's between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. They call it Pennsylvania, Tennessee, whatever you wish. Uh, but we go up to visit my parents, and every year, my parents, they're so generous, they just dump gifts on our kids. They buy so many things for our kids, toys galore, and basically what that means for me on Christmas Day is I'm putting toys together all day. But we always run into this challenge every Christmas, and it's this. My parents buy our children a bunch of toys that require AA batteries, but the only batteries that we actually have in the house are AAA batteries. And I say to my mom every year, I say, Mom, why do you keep buying AAA batteries and you're buying AA toys? And she said, well, the AAA were on sale. I said, okay. <laughs> All right. I understand. I understand. 
So naturally, when I sit there and I look at the situation, I'm looking at the toys and I'm looking at the AAA batteries. And at first, I'm just frustrated. I said, man, this is frustrating. But then, after a little while, I start saying, well, maybe I could get those AAA batteries to work in this AA device. And so I start trying to scheme up a plan. It never works. But every year, I, I'm, I'm determined to try and make it work somehow. Now, you may not be as crazy as me trying to get a AA device to work with AAA power. But I bet you are like me in that you have tried on many occasions to try and use insufficient power supplies in order to drive certain callings in your life. You have tried to have a AA marriage on AAA power. You've tried to do AA work on AAA power. You've tried to have AA relationships on AAA power. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We have been given gifts from the Lord. And each one of the gifts that he has given us, from our lives to our work to our relationships to our neighboring, everything in our lives was meant to be driven by the Spirit of God. The spiritual power of God was meant to energize and motivate all of life. But so often we're found resorting to lesser powers. We turn to our intellectual power. But soon we find out that we're not smart enough to get our lives to flourish like they were meant to flourish. We resort to willpower, and we think that we can be committed enough to get our lives to work the way they were meant to, but we find out that we run out of gas, don't we? And then at times, we turn to our financial power, but we learn that we cannot spend our way into the kind of flourishing that God calls us to in the gospel. All of these lesser power sources will leave us disappointed, they will leave us confused, and ultimately they will cause us to fall flat in the things that God wants for us to have. So this morning, we are going to consider the one power source that we all need to live the kind of lives we were meant to live, to execute our callings, to be the kind of friends we were meant to be, to be the kind of neighbors we were meant to be, to be the kind of spouses and parents we were meant to be. It's the only way you will make it through is if you turn to a different kind of power, and that power is God's Spirit. So this morning, we are going to approach our text through two points. I, I'm breaking all Presbyterian preaching convention. Two points. Two points. And those two points are going to be this. We are going to consider the intensive work of the Holy Spirit and the extensive work of the Holy Spirit. So let's turn to our first point as we consider the intensive work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look at verse 1, verse 1 begins to set up some context for us to appreciate what's happening in this text. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, Pentecost was a feast of the Jewish people. It was a feast of Israel. And in this feast, what the people would do is they would take the first fruits of their harvest and they would bring it in before the Lord as an offering. It was called a wave offering. They would stand before the Lord and they would wave it. And what they were saying in this action is this. We believe that this is just the beginning of the greater harvest that you're going to bring in, Lord. We're trusting you to bring in much more than we're holding before you right now. It was an expectancy that was a part of Pentecost. But there was another illusion that was going on in Pentecost. And it had to do with the exodus. After God's people were set free from slavery in Egypt, 
God leads them out. Moses leads them out. The Lord is blessing that. And then they get into the desert and they say, now what? Now what are we supposed to do? Now who are we supposed to be? And so God says, Moses, come on up here. That's the Russ Whitfield International Version. Come on up here, Moses. Moses comes on up, and he gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, all right? Now, these Ten Words, Moses comes up the mountain, then he goes back down with the Ten Words. And these these laws from God were meant to be a beautiful expression of what it could look like for God's people to live together. And what it should look like for God's people to live in the midst of the nations surrounding them. This was supposed to order their community. This was supposed to shape their community. So now, when we turn to what's happening in the book of Acts, chapter 2, we're prepared to appreciate what's going on here. Because when we think of this text, we should see the first fruits of a greater harvest that is to come. People from different nations are here in this text. And they are hearing the gospel. They're hearing the mighty works of God. We'll get to that later. This is the first fruits of the the beginning of what God is going to do in extending his kingdom. But also, if you remember back to chapter 1, you will remember that this is just after Jesus died for our sins to set us free from slavery. And now he rises from the dead. He meets his disciples and they're like, now what? And he says, well... I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. I'm going to ascend. And he starts ascending, and they're just like. And they watch Jesus. Could you imagine that, watching Jesus just float off? It's like, woo, woo. What do we do? What do we do? Jesus floats off, but he goes up. One greater than Moses ascends to the Father, but he doesn't send down the law after that. He sends down his spirit to be the new organizing and animating power of God's community who shows us how we're supposed to relate to one another, who shows us how we're supposed to relate to the nations around us, who shows us the kind of dynamic that we ought to have in our community. That's what's happening here at Pentecost. This is just, you know, this is just the the, the setup to help us appreciate what's going on here in this text. Jesus tells them that they will be his witnesses. In, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And now we begin to see that taking shape here in this text. Verse 4 tells us, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here we begin to see the intensive work of the Spirit taking place in the church. But we need to think more deeply about this intensive work that God is out to do in the Christian, in the individual Christian, and in the Christian community, in the church. If you remember, uh, I'm sure Pastor Walt has told you about the connection that exists between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are really one work. And the only reason why they've been separated into two books is because because the scroll was too big for Luke's quiet time. He He couldn't hold Luke and Acts together. I'm just kidding. No, they were too big to fit on one scroll, and so he had to break it into two works. But Luke acts as one work. And so to appreciate what's going on with the Spirit and the church, we have to go back to the Gospel of Luke, and we have to consider the work of the Spirit in the Gospel of Luke. And there's some pretty powerful results that we find in this text. What does it look like for the Spirit to get a hold of us? Well, take a look at Jesus. 
what we will see in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is first and foremost a man of the Spirit. His physical body was conceived by the Holy Spirit, according to Dr. Luke, who wrote this book. The Spirit descended like a dove and rested upon him at his baptism. Luke tells us that Jesus was full of the Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And after he defeats Satan's temptation, he returns to Galilee, the text says, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that at his first sermon, Jesus enters into the synagogue, right? And then he grabs the Isaiah scroll and he unrolls the Isaiah scroll and he begins to read this text. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he preaches the shortest Christ-centered sermon that's ever been preached. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Any questions? This text about the Spirit of the Lord being upon this person, that's talking about me. The one who sets captives free, that's talking about me. The one who brings liberty to the oppressed, that's talking about me. He is first and foremost a man of the Spirit. And when we think about the ministry of Jesus, we need to think about his ministry as a partnership between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a man of the Spirit when he healed the sick, when he exercised demons, when he showed mercy, when he cleansed lepers, when he resisted temptation, when he prayed to the Father, when he worshipped God, when he befriended sinners and sacrificed his life, when he rose from the dead. In all of these things, Jesus Christ was above all a man of the Spirit. He shows us everything that a human being was always meant to be, and yet he remained everything that God Almighty always was. Jesus shows us what life in the Spirit looks like. He shows us what true spirituality is about. And just as a side note, if you're here this morning and you're still investigating the Christian faith, you're still working through issues of faith and life and doubt and all that kind of stuff, you may call yourself spiritual, not religious. What I would encourage you to consider is the bold claim of the Christian faith that true spirituality looks like what Jesus looks like. That's true spirituality. At the heart of true spirituality is Jesus. That's what Luke would have us consider. That's what Luke would have us believe. Now, when you think about the work of the Spirit in your life, when you think about what God plans for us as his people in pouring out his Spirit, this is where it gets all the more meaningful and all the more exciting for us. Because what the Spirit, in a sense, was doing all through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. As he was just, and he was empowering, but he's, he's like taking notes on the beauty, the moral and ethical beauty in the life of Christ. And he's saying, I can't wait to produce this kind of beauty in the lives of our people. He's taking note on the heart of Christ, what he loves and how he sacrifices and serves, how, how he thinks about and prays for people, how he uses his words toward people. And he, he's taking note and he's saying, yep, I'm going to put some of that into their lives too. I can't wait to work that, work that out in my people. I can't work, wait to work that out among my people. So when the Spirit is poured out on the church, he's coming with luggage. He's not just coming for a short little stay. It's not a furlough. 
He's coming and he's moving in with all of the luggage. And whenever you bring someone into your place, you got to get rid of some stuff, all right? Some things in your life got to go. And, and, and what the Spirit comes in, he comes in with his luggage, and he, he comes to unpack the 33 years of the life of Christ in us. He says, you know what? This place needs some righteousness. This, this place needs some mercy. This place needs some love. This place needs, you know, matter of fact, knock that wall down. We need to tear out all the electrical. We need to rewire this place. This is what he comes to do. He comes to unpack the fullness of the life of Christ within us as individuals and among us as a community. To put it shortly, what the Spirit comes to do is clone the heart of Jesus within us. He wants to strike us with the beauty of Christ in such a way that we begin to be changed by him intensively, internally. Because, because here's the deal. It's hardwired into us to share and celebrate the things that we love. Many of y'all, when you hear about that, when you taste that new restaurant, your favorite restaurant, you, you talk about it. Unless you're just being selfish and trying to keep the line short, all right? You tell people about your favorite restaurant. Oh, you got to try it. You got to try it. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. Anything that you love and esteem, you will share. And what we're seeing in this text is that God is out to drive this thing, this message, this gospel into the souls of his people, into the hearts of his people, because what goes deepest to your heart will go most widely to the world. What goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. You will broadcast whatever is written upon your soul. The messages that are recorded upon your soul are the messages that you will broadcast to the world. Those can be good or bad, right? We say these kinds of things all the time. The question is not, do you worship? The question is, what do you worship? The question is not, are you a disciple? The question is, who is your master? And here's the deal. This is why the church has to be good at discipleship. Because if the church is not discipling people, the world gladly will. The world wants to tell you how to live your life, how to order your life, what you should love, what you should worship, what, what kind of good news you should take out to other people. All right? It could be the good news of tolerance. All right? But here's the deal. Jesus didn't call you to tolerance. You can tolerate someone without loving them. He calls you to something much deeper and much, much more intense, and that's love. Love is better than tolerance. When you think about it, you, you want more than tolerance. You want love. You want to be embraced, accepted, and received. And that's precisely what we are offered in the gospel. That's precisely the message that is written upon the heart of the Christian that is meant to be broadcast to the world. It needs to go deeply to the heart so that it can, can go widely to the world. That's the intensive work that leads us to the extensive work. So let's look at our second point as we consider the extensive work of the Spirit. Now, check it out. Look at what happens in this text. Verse 4. Look at verse 4. The Spirit is poured out, right? The Spirit is poured out. And then the disciples get this miraculous ability to speak in different languages so that other people can hear and understand what they're saying. Now, look, here's the deal. It's easy to get down in the weeds about this. All right, can we still do this today? You know, what's the deal with this miraculous spiritual gift or ability to speak in other languages? There is an important place to talk about those things. But what I'd like you to do is just go up to the 30,000-foot view and realize this. 
at Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out on the disciples, they are driven and compelled and empowered to translate the message of the gospel for people who are different than them. They are empowered to take a new message to people from all different walks of life. Like, look, there's a reason why Luke is taking pains to try and help us to understand this. Look at where these people are from. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. He's saying everywhere, all right? Everywhere. There were people from everywhere. It's important for us to realize that the disciples didn't say, well, I know you Parthians have your truth. But for us, we like Jesus. Right? No, it was so much more than that. They didn't go to the Medes and say, I know you got your Mede truth, but we like Jesus. Right? No, they were declaring something definitive. Right? The text says that they were declaring five steps to a new... Wait, no, that's not what it says. They were declaring your best life now. Wait, no. Ah, they were declaring the mighty acts of God. And what were those mighty acts? What were the mighty acts of God? That he died and abolished sin. What was the mighty act of God? That he set his people free. What were the mighty acts of God? That he emptied the tomb. He placed a vacancy sign on it and said, all power has been given unto me. Power over what? Pick something. Pick something. We talk about all different kinds of power. But there's another kind of power, and it's all power. That's the kind of power that they're declaring. The mighty works of God is that Jesus is risen. This is the divine confirmation that his death was sufficient to pay for sin and to renew the world again. That's good news. That's good news that he lives. So when you go into the book of Acts and you start asking questions like, what was it that caused them to put their lives on the line? He lives. That message. He lives. Why would they sacrifice themselves to make this message known? Because he lives. Why would they build relationships over racial and class lines? Because he lives. Why would they be willing to be thrown in jail and beaten, imprisoned, and still sing hymns in the prison? Because he lives. And why should you be willing to use your life and every resource that you have to make him known? Because he lives. Why should you be willing to go across the street and go across the globe to make Jesus known? Because he lives. Why should you be willing to love your children and love your spouse sacrificially and selflessly? Because he lives. This is the explanation for everything that we see unfolding in the life of the church. He lives. They hear the disciples declaring the mighty works of God. This is is the important thing about this. God empowers you and me to get into the lives of other people and to make the message connect with them. Translational ability. Not only does he give us wisdom and insight as we stick close to people in loving friendships, trying to understand their world, trying to understand where they're coming from. Not only does God help us to understand insights into the people that we're seeking to love to translate the gospel for them, but he empowers us with the kind of love that makes us stick to them for as long as it takes in order to make the love and grace of Christ known to them. 
And in the process, it's never a one-way street. We're always learning as much as we're giving away. If I haven't learned anything else in pastoral ministry, it's that I get as much as I give. It's a beautiful thing that God does with his church. Now, admittedly, it's going to take a lot more to actually get them to leave Jerusalem. But here's the beginning of it. A new power has entered into their lives. A new power has entered into their lives. And, and here's, here's why I'm, I'm so encouraged and so appreciative of your giving and your, your generosity to us. Because I've been seeing this kind of thing working out in our Grace Mosaic community. And it has been so deeply encouraging. There's all kind of things that, that have been happening. They're not brochure kind of things, but they're the real, real deal kind of things. For example, I got this note. It was a thank you note from a woman in our neighborhood saying, thank you, Pastor Whitfield. You know, I couldn't believe it, you, how your community just, you know, took care of us after we had the house fire and lost everything. Everything that we asked and asked for was provided for by your community, and I just want to thank you. And I was like, what? I didn't plan that. Who did this? Is this addressed to the right person? And I come to find out that one of our women's groups was so compelled to show love to this woman. They, this family had a house fire, and they emptied the, the list of needs out of love, just for Jesus' sake. And they didn't even let anyone know. That I was like, my work here's done, okay? <laughs> I read my thank you letter, and I, I was like, I wish there was a return address so I could say, I didn't have anything to do with this. But that's the kind of thing that happens when the, the Spirit gets a hold of your life. How much more open might this woman be to hearing about the grace of God in Jesus Christ because she's experienced that love tangibly? It's just one example, right? I don't know what the next thing is before you, but do it. Do it. I don't know what it is you need God's power to do, accept everything, but what is the next thing in front of you that you need the Lord to help you with? Maybe it's a hard relationship at your job. Maybe it's a tough neighbor that doesn't want anything to do with you, and you're just trying to hope for the smallest gleam of possibility of getting to know one another. Maybe it's someone who taunts you at, at work because of your faith. I don't know what it is. I don't know who it is, but what this text is telling you is that God's power is available to you. One of the greatest expressions of trust in God's power, rather than leaning on your own power, is prayer. Prayer. I love the E.M. Bounds quote where he says, No amount of gifting, no amount of intelligence, research, or knowledge will make up for a failure to pray. Prayer is the language of dependence. And in that way, we're calling on God in prayer, and we're saying, I can't rely upon my intellectual power. It can't see me through. I can't turn to mere willpower. I know the good news is that you're more committed to seeing these things happen in my life than I will ever be. We can't turn to our financial power, but we can re rejoice in the fact that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. And he delights to use us and bless us for the building up of his kingdom. When this message of God's grace in Jesus Christ gets to our hearts, it will show up extensively. And maybe something to bring into the prayer room, maybe something to bring into your community to ask them to pray for you, is I'm, I feel like I'm still not resonating here at the heart level 
with the gospel. You may be working through questions or doubts, or you might be experiencing a rough patch in your life right now. Sufferings, trials, hardships. All of these things can shake us, can shake our faith. And what we see coming out can oftentimes scare us. But the good news of God's grace is that there's nothing that's going to come out of you that he didn't already know was there. And he still offers his grace to you fully and freely. He, he knows who you are. And yet and still, he's willing to offer his love and his grace and his acceptance to you. The more and more this begins to settle in, the more and more you will begin to see those transforming acts and deeds of love in your life. I, I really appreciate, I heard this illustration from this pastor one time. He talked about, you know, his, there's, a, there's a soda machine in front of his apartment building. And he would go down to the soda machine and he would put coins into the soda machine. But there would be no product coming out. The coins were in, but the product wasn't coming out. So what you'd have to do is you'd have to shake it. You'd have to shake it. And then the coins would drop, and then out would come the soda. And in a similar way, we can have a mental assent to the truths of the gospel. We can know the data of the gospel. But oftentimes what God is doing in the times of trial, in the times of hardship and difficulty, in the times of struggle and sense of weakness, as he's trying to shake us, in a sense, so that we will digest the gospel, so the gospel will get in. Maybe he's bringing you into the context of suffering to show you your weakness so that you can know his strength. Maybe he's bringing you to the end of yourself so that you can get to the beginning of true faith. God will do anything necessary in order to save you. Sometimes he needs to save us from us. No matter what, make it your prayer that he would continue that intensive work in your heart and that the extensive results would show up in your relationships and in the way you live in your place. This is the good news, that God is continuing his work through us. It's not the most efficient thing. <laughs> it never is to include your kids, but it's worth it. It's worth it for the joy of allowing them to participate in the work. God is up to something much bigger than efficiency by including us in his work. And aren't you glad about that, that you can participate in that work? Let's pray that he would en enable us and strike us at the heart level with the beauty of Jesus so that our lives will show that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the beauty and the power of your love. When nothing else could help us, when there was no retrieving us, when there was no breaking us loose, you came in. The greatest two words we ever heard were, but God. The good news of Jesus as the rescuer, as the redeemer, as the one who puts the Pharaoh in his place. We are grateful, God, that you conquered sin, death, and the devil at the cross, and that now, through union with you, by faith in Christ, we can participate in that victory, and we can participate in that labor, that meaningful labor of seeing your kingdom grow, 
of seeing people come to know your love and grace, of seeing people transformed by the message of hope in Jesus. And we ask, God, that you would help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful to this task on the days when we're tired, when we feel like throwing in the towel, when we're disoriented and confused about life's directions. Help us to lay hold of the anchor in Jesus. And we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would motivate us, that you would drive us and compel us, that you would be our song, that you would be our delight, that you would be our joy. God, we pray that you would do this supernatural work by the power of your spirit. And bless my friends here at Cornerstone for their generosity. I pray that they would know you to be a rich provider for those who trust and give for the sake of your kingdom. Let them know that you are more for them than they could ever be for themselves. Let them know that you're more committed to them than they are to themselves. And let them have great joy in participating in your work here in Southern Maryland. Bless them and keep them. Make your face shine on them and be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.